Goddag og velkommen til Langsomme Samtaler, der sætter verden sammen. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Det var de helt store historiske jul, der blev sat i bevægelse i februar i år. Da Rusland invaderede Ukraine, førte det til en kaskade af begivenheder, der gør, at Skandinavien er fuldstændig fundamentalt forandret i dag. Først valgte Finland at gøre op med mere end et halvt århundrede neutralitet. Og da Finland valgte at gøre op med mere end et halvt århundredes neutralitet og søge om optagelse i NATO, så pressede det Sverige. Så Sverige gjorde op med 200 års alliancefrihed. Også søgte om optagelse i NATO. Og pludselig har vi et Skandinavien, der har været delt i sikkerhedspolitiske spørgsmål, som nu er fuldstændig samlet om, at vi er klar på NATO. Det spændende er, hvad er det, der udløste dette kolossale opgør i den skandinaviske sikkerhedsstruktur? Det taler jeg i den her uge med Thomas Forsberg om. Han er en af Finlands mest respekterede sikkerhedsforskere. Han er en fantastisk kulturforsker og har skrevet adskillige bøger, hvoraf jeg vil fremhæve Russia's Cultural Statecraft, som er fra i år, hvor han beskriver, hvordan Rusland bruger blød magt til at påvirke deres naboer og til at påvirke deres fjender, så vi bliver mere bange for dem. Thomas Forsberg har en enestående indsigt i finsk sikkerhedspolitik, men også en meget sjælden forståelse for russisk geopolitik. Good evening and welcome to our viewers here in Denmark and especially good evening to you, Thomas Forsberg, who's with us from Helsinki. Thank you, thank you and thank you for the invitation. Vi kommer ind på det hele i den her langsom samtale, som starter med at redegøre for om Thomas Forsberg selv har taget militær træning om han vil være klar til at forsvare sit land med våben. God fornøjelse. We've been following Finland with admiration for many years because you're a country that is a lot more exposed to real enemies than we are here in in Denmark and you have your own defense and you have a defense capacity that we can hardly imagine. And I think the level of commitment to defending Finland by the Finnish is unknown to many Danes. At least I was surprised recently to learn that 70% of Finnish men were trained militarily to defend their country. And 70% of the population said they were willing to carry arms to defend Finland. Have you received military training and would you be willing to defend your country? I was in the military right after my graduation, before I went to university, as most other people did in my age. Uh, it was more than 90%, I think, that did the military service at the time in the 80s. Uh, now it's more selective, but still, we still have the conscription and the majority will do a military service of a, approximately of a year, year's time. Um, but uh, you mentioned this service on national will. It's a little bit of an anomaly uh, in a postmodern uh, that values in the Nordic countries, but also in Sweden. The world defense is on such a high level, and my actually my first job where I already was an intern was a defense ministry where we did these surveys to measure this national will to defend. And my master dissertation was about how to explain this will. Do these surveys actually measure anything that is a behavior, or do just people say that yes, I'm willing to defend my country, but it doesn't mean anything. And of course, I didn't get anything that is um. Uh, answer that we could trust but uh it's got it's been consistent and you can see some variation but it's it's been a tradition to say that yes we are willing and then it materializes into voluntary defense work that people uh, people do so difficult to know exactly what would happen in a in a real crisis the war but uh it's an indication that people are ready 
how do you explain of course you have the geographical position have you have the the history of the winter war and you're a relatively young country that cannot take its sovereignty for granted but still it's a very high level of potential mobilization how did you explain it i think it's still the the second world war still used to be so close uh at least for my generation so it's my grandparents generation so the question is really whether it would have been so important for the fourth generation whether it would have become a national myth that doesn't mean that much uh, but the the second world war was finland that was the when the nation was really born that was the myth not when we got our independence after the first world war because that was followed by the civil war so the second world war united finland and that's why it's been part of this uh, tradition to celebrate when we celebrate independence it's always the second world war and that's part of the tradition that people value during the second world war and of course when people compared finland's fate with those of the baltic states still in the 90s now again with the youngest generation they do not necessarily see that much of the difference it was clear that the choice to defend was was the right one and one very big question that i think is difficult to to answer because you haven't seen finland without this willingness but uh, studying the numbers you have a lot of soldiers ready to defend finland and a lot of reserves as well and the defense has influenced the civil institutions and the private corporations in finland to an extent that it hasn't in in other scandinavian countries i would guess so so how does that affect a country over time that that you have so many soldiers and that it's part of civil society it's part of corporate life yeah the number of soldiers that of course um, it it is not just on the paper on the paper there were much more but the the what you said the corporate life that's important i guess that one unique thing in finland is uh, very popular national defense courses where the very elite level people go together for four weeks and 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 they discuss and they have uh, the defense matters and and defense planning and that's that's been very popular so it's kind of a national duty so even if you work in the business to do that it takes four weeks away of your normal normal work but it's still something people want to do so that's perhaps something that tells that it's been there in the inbuilt in the in the many many social traditions you know here in denmark we spoke after we took part in the war in iraq and and of course the one in afghanistan we spoke about how that changed the esteem of soldiers and people on the left will say well this also entails entails a certain militarization of of society and it shapes the ideals of society i'm not quite sure whether that's 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 right right on or not uh, but 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 how, how how did it shape the the ideals and virtues of finland um no not not that much so the culture is not militarized in other aspects so it's it's been a, i think it's been um uh, one dimension that belongs to the expressing nationality and the history and tradition and paying tribute to the those who died in the war whatever uh, but otherwise society is not militarized as such though i should mention the same elite people that go to the national defense courses that amongst them hunting is also very popular so finland is also a hunting country and 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 but these those weapons and that's somewhat different than the actual war fighting of course <laughs> There is this uh, this famous stone at the castle Sumenlinna outside Helsinki mm. where where it says that uh, that the generations of the future cannot rely on the assistance of foreigners 
but must stand by themselves. And when I was in Finland a couple of years ago, I was told about this, this stone as part of a proud neutrality. They're saying we can defend ourselves. We do not rely on the kindness of strangers. So, so how, how, how is the feeling now about deciding to join NATO? Uh, that, that, that's right. But first of all, this, this uh, what's written, the slogan uh, uh, in, in, in the stone that you, sh- you shouldn't trust foreign assistance, but rely just on your 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 own. Um, it's a paradox that all this this Suomenlinna castle uh, fortress is built on by French money. So it, it was foreign <laughs> <laughs> assistance given to Sweden at the time. But of course, during the Cold War years, when we didn't have any allies or formal allies, uh, or we didn't want to have Soviet Union as an ally, really. So that was became as a national uh, motto. And the fact that Finland survived alone, more or less alone, of course, there were Germans also fighting in Finland, but uh, the the both wars that we had during the Second World War was part of that, that we 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 should defend ourselves uh, and, and not trust that anybody is coming to help us. That has changed now. That's It's true. And um, not radically, but uh, maybe the idea is that it doesn't hurt if you trust yourself, but also if you get some more assistance. So I think that the most people would think that it's, it's, it's for the deterrence purposes. It's not so much for the actual protection, but simply the deterrence function is, is higher if you, have, if you are a member of an alliance. I spoke to the Swedish historian Henrik Berggren last week. You know, he wrote the biography about Olof Palme, about Sweden joining NATO. And I think for Sweden and Finland, it's very different because for Sweden, it's very much a national moral position uh, to, to, to be free, free of alliances. And he said, well, he felt that that it was the right thing to join NATO after you decided to join NATO. They, they had to. But he also said that he felt some kind of loss, that, that it was the right thing, but still he felt that, that Sweden lost something. Do, do you see any of, of the same feelings in Finland? Absolutely, absolutely. But there's a, it's, a, it's a difference in degree, not an absolute. We have followed, been following Sweden and Finland declared neutrality already before the Second World War, only that was not respected by the, by the great powers at the time. Uh, so the, the same ideals are there. Many people share them, but but that's the difference with Sweden, that in Finland, the whole idea of neutrality has been more instrumental during the Cold War than in Sweden. So for Finland, for many, neutrality meant you are not allied with the Soviet Union rather than you are not allied with the West. Um, and therefore, it is easy to take one step further when it's possible. Um, to me, Finland has over the years obviously been a Western country. You know, you're part of the European Union, very Mm. engaged in, in the European Union. You even have the euro, which we don't here in, in Denmark, because we have a lot of commitment to the Danish crown. Uh, so I, I, I think I always thought of you. I knew you played hockey like Russia and you're part of that league, but I always thought of you as a Western country. Does this change anything for, for, for you to be part of the alliance and the national identity? Uh, that's a good question. I think that most people would exactly say that no. This is not to become Western. This is guaranteed that we remain Western rather than to become. And the former Prime Minister Paavo Lipponen just came home when he thought that his his uh, what did he really say when he came out that, that that people have forgotten that Finland already was a Western country when he was Prime Minister. Maybe he wanted to defend that he didn't see the need for Finland to join NATO when he was Prime Minister from mid 90s to mid 2000. 
Uh, and his, his primary reason for that was very simple. Finland is not an Eastern European country, and therefore we don't need NATO. So he was perhaps the, even the biggest motivation why Finland didn't join NATO in the 90s or early 2000. And of course, the reference group was Sweden and the other Nordic countries was, they were important to, to Finland already during the Cold War. So when in the famous uh, Molotov-Ribbentrop Treaty, Finland was the fourth Baltic country, it was so important for Finland that during the Cold War years, Finland became the fifth Nordic country. And, and therefore the continuity was more important for many people like that from a prime minister Lipponen uh, to say that, no, it's not a matter of our, whether we are Western or not. We, we became Western or that we, even we joined the European Union. That was much more important as a statement of where do we belong and much more comprehensive as to the societal effects and all that and con connections and, and so forth. You know, there's also this defense clause in the European Union. It's very rarely evoked, but I noticed that it was evoked recently when Magdalene Andersen, she was in, in Berlin, and she said, well, you have to defend a European ally uh, because we, we're, we're part of the European uh, Union. And it's something that's never evoked, but it's not unimportant, I think. Has that played a part for you guys in Finland? Yes, and Finland was actually saying that should be evoked when there was a terrorist attack in, in Paris. Um, more than five years ago, uh, and but the I think that was very ambivalent because Finland and perhaps Sweden too, but especially Finland wanted to have that mutual defense clause in the in the European Union treaty, and and think that well it it might be a good solution that we have this defense coming from the European Union if it doesn't disturb Russia and and it's kind of the second best option. Then if it's if it's uh, will provoke Russia, that if it join, should we join NATO? So we could have something from the European Union. Uh, but then there were those who thought that Finland shouldn't abandon the status as a non-aligned, militarily non-aligned country, and therefore there was this ad addition to that paragraph, that uh, article, that that it doesn't affect the status of the neutral countries of the European Union. So it it went both ways. But really, I think that some people thought that over time, maybe the European Union will develop into a proper uh, defense union, and then Finland would be a member of that, and then maybe maybe there wouldn't be NATO, and that would take time. But now when the situation has developed, and it's not a realistic uh, defense union at the moment, so then they, there was only NATO left as a, as a realistic choice if you want to ally yourself. Are you surprised that if I, if I asked you one year ago, would you expect Finland to join NATO within a year? Are you surprised about the, the gravity with, with which this happened? I, I was really surprised. I was surprised that the public opinion changed so quickly and so decisively. So that that was that, that was public opinion driven. Uh, I thought that Finland, if Finland joined NATO, the most likely uh, sequence of events would be that the public opinion that where the plurality in Sweden already was in favor of NATO membership after 2014 in, in many polls would lead to the Swedish government to take a more positive attitude towards Sweden's membership in NATO. And then the Finnish leadership politicians would follow Sweden. And last would come the Finnish public opinion in favor of to support Finland's membership in NATO. But it all started with the sudden change of the Finnish public opinion almost overnight during the week when the war started. And, and there were two reasons for that. The one is that Finland and Sweden were mentioned 
by Putin at that this crisis concerns whole of Europe, the European security order, and also demanded that Finland and Sweden wouldn't be able to join NATO. So people thought that, well, this is not somewhere uh, far away or somewhere in, in, in the former Soviet Union, but this is also concerning Finland. And then when the war started, so unlike 2014 or 2008, people saw that it was like unprovoked. And the, as said, the winter war of 1939 is so much inbuilt in the Finnish national collective memory that immediately the analogy was there. And it was an emotional push that, that changed the public opinion. But I should say that it, there were there were majority of the Finnish public opinion um, ever since the, the the public opinion post started to measure that from the early 90s. Never more than 30% supported Finland's membership in NATO. So there was there was wide resistance, 60% or so, but it wasn't deep. The same 60% supported always the close cooperation with NATO. So it was clear that there was this uh, tacit support for closer cooperation with NATO and, and then eventually for this membership. And then one strong tradition in Finland is a consensus when it comes to security and defense. And when there was a majority in favor of NATO membership, many joined the wagon, of, but also the tradition of, be, of supporting the majority in in, especially the politicians. So you had a vote in the parliament where the 188 for and eight against. And you can't understand that result without the tradition of consensus in, in Finland's um, security and defense policy. Here in Denmark, I think the immediate reaction to Putin's aggression was that he was very strong. They would probably take Ukraine within a week. They would reach Kiev very fast. So I think we thought they were stronger militarily than they turned out to be. And I think if you look back at some of the decisions that were taken at the time, for instance, the economic sanctions were meant as a kind of punishment and not that now we're going into an economic warfare with no exit strategy. So I think we there were some minor decisions taken here in Denmark out of sudden emotion and also war on the European continent and Russia that we always feared a little bit turned out to be very dangerous. Would you say that it was a risky move for the politicians to follow the public opinion so fast instead of just waiting half a year? Well, my initial reaction was, and partly, partly considering that the public opinion didn't change that much after 2014, and that's the reason that I didn't expect that to change so fast and so decisively after, after February uh, when the war started so quickly either. I, I thought that there would be always people thinking that now it's even more dangerous. Uh, but then when this public opinion then shifted, I think that the politicians didn't have any other choice but to follow that. They would have lost their leadership. And then they started to, to negotiate and, and, and meet people, not only Stoltenberg, but Biden, other, other leaders of the NATO countries, and, and plan the strategy. So how do, you, how do you move? And then, of course, Sweden. And, and then it started to see as a possible option. So they didn't, when the, the president launched that process and the prime minister didn't, didn't publicly say that we actually are striving towards NATO membership. We are exploring things, but almost everybody knew that what the end result would be. Only that now there's the question of 
what is the role of Turkey that if they had a phone conversation, our president and Erdogan said, there's no problem that he will support them, then should they have known that there will be these uh, bumps on the road, at least, if not, not a total block that prevents Finland and Sweden joining NATO. So that is um, that that was exactly one of those risks that I thought that that maybe it's unwise uh, to start such a process in midst of a a crisis or a war in in the neighborhood. Uh, if you didn't do that in 2014 or 15, then why should you start that process now, uh, when you in any case have to take times time at least normally at least a year. Uh, so we are lucky if that's less than a year. But uh, let's see. So just to make sure that I understand you right, that because the people wanted it, the politicians had to follow them. If they didn't follow him, it would be like abandoning their urge for security. I think so. The president always, he, he had been urged that why are you not in favor? Because the elite, uh, the foreign policy elite, but not the politicians were in favor of NATO membership. The journalists were constantly asking, so why why are you not in, in favor of, of, of Finland's Uh, membership in NATO, and the president was saying that well, he can't change the public opinion. He was hiding behind the the back of the public opinion. But when the public opinion then changed, then he had didn't have this cover, and he had to do something. And also, if you saw then the public uh, opinion polls uh, concerning the parties, the party that's been most uh, advocating Finland's membership in NATO, the Conservatives, they were leading in the polls. So the Social Democrats, that's the Prime Minister's party. They had to take the initiative so that they wouldn't lose entirely. So I think there was this dynamic going on. And very rarely you see that processes that are so much driven by the public opinion. And I think that's the case. Uh, and very rarely you see that in security and defense or foreign and, and security policy. Of course, there are some some framing issues and the role of the press and, and the media But they have been advocating or basically in favor of Finland's membership in NATO since the early 2000s. So that is not something that had changed. So there was something that changed exactly in the expression of, of the opinion by the citizens. And of course, social media helped. So there, during the week or the two weeks before the war started, there was not only one, but two citizens initiatives launched. And they very quickly gathered the 50,000 names that were needed for Finland's membership in NATO that would have brought to the parliament. So there was this pressure when the war started that the politicians had to deal with. Yeah, it must be. I'm trying to think of any analogies in Danish history, and I can't think of anywhere popular will is transmitted so fast into the political. Into There's the... one analogy in Finland that's a same-sex marriage <laughs> that the politicians didn't, but the the public opinion was so strongly in favor of le- legislation for for same-sex marriage, uh, that the politicians just had to do that. From a professional point of view, do you think that Finland is more exposed now where the where you're in the relation NATO-Russia instead of being Finland-Russia? Uh, Finland, do, do you think that, that this is a more dangerous position uh, for you than it was before? I know this is a difficult question. Many people think so, but... Uh... It's less dangerous in a way because now Russia is tied elsewhere. We know that its military capabilities limited. We know that the membership would provoke Russia, but it's also something that Russia has always said that when the Baltic states or the other countries, when NATO enlarged, 
it always said that this will be a red line, but then at the end of the day, it didn't do that much. So it's more symbolic. And, and as a matter of fact, um, when this crisis is over and when we can start normalizing relations with Russia, so I don't know when that will be, but I think that Finland will be one of those who would like to, if Finland is then a member of NATO, to see that the some kinds of cooperative relationship between NATO and Russia could be re-established. And the question is, are we more like Norway or are we more like Baltic states in our attitudes towards Russia? Or are we more like Germany? I think that we are we are somewhere in between, but we are still so much in favor of somehow um that was one of the, the cornerstones of Finland's previous defense policy, security defense, the friendship, good relations with Russia. And now that's gone. But having that back wouldn't hurt either. So, yeah, because when I was in Helsinki, I was quite surprised to see that there's also a larger extent of cultural exchange between Finland and Russia and then the collective references and people looking at each other than we see here. To what extent have you been exposed in Finland to what you and your book call the soft power of, of Russia? It's a very, very interesting. A, you didn't write the chapter where one mm. says that that Russia is exporting fear, that they're exporting the kind of, of picture of the enemy that, that we feed on in our own popular culture here in the West as, as well. To what extent have you been exposed to that popular culture uh, uh, in, in Finland? Um, somewhat, of course, as I said, is part of the national collective memory and identity making, uh, having that, the war movies and, and all that. But it has become less focused on the enemy than more focused on ourselves. And, 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 and so the idea that it would somehow strengthen or keep alive the enemy image is not necessarily true, at least during these last months. Now it's it's well and alive again. So that actually changed quite a lot. I think many people thought that those old memories and attitudes that they perhaps like my parents and those that age, that they are still back. They are back so strongly that they thought would not um, that they they shouldn't relive these memories from their childhood. But otherwise, I would say that it's been Russia's soft power um, and and attempts to to somehow influence Finland's policy. We have been vaccinated against that, so to say. <laughs> so our populist party, only a few MPs, those who have been leaning towards Russia, understanding, have understood Russia's position. So they've been traditionalist, and 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 even the former leader uh, has a PhD in Church Slavonic and, and speaks and tweets in Ukrainian. So <laughs> he's more... <laughs> so it's... A, Uh, a funny fact, but um, it's historically layered. But if you ask, so what are our people um, attitudes? Are they positive or negative or neutral? In various public opinion polls, it's been over the years, been it's been the same. So one third is positive, has a positive attitude towards Russia. One third is neutral. One third is negative, and that hasn't changed. I think it's a typical case where when soft power elements or cultural influences are those who already have a positive attitude will have the, the positive attitude nurtured by that influence and those who are negative, that will not influence their views of Russia. But it's true that in that book and, and in my view, uh, Russia had a missed opportunity to improve its image through culture 
and the the literature and music and and ballet and and whatever uh, but it it to a large extent failed because it put so much emphasis on the military might great powerhood history and 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 political values that were not exactly those that we normally talk about soft power but they helped to create a more positive image of of Russia and to, to return to that book and, and another question about, about Russia is that and that is really my bias it's self revealing mm-hmm. on me that i never really thought of anybody else but america that could have a soft power <laughs> that could have a soft power initiative and a soft power boost that was important like that and you say in in your piece that that it accelerated in the first part of the 21st century this propaganda boost and this soft power what what were the ingredients of of, of the 21st century soft power boost from russia Well, they learned after the. It, it's really many of the instruments were developed and and the strategies mid 2000. And Putin and his associates, the people, the regime in in Kremlin, were clever enough to see that how powerful the U.S. system was and the anti soft power discourse and the Iraq War and how how especially the information campaigns were um, persuading people to support the war and all that. They saw things, but of course they saw part of that, and they started their own TV channels and information campaigns, and thought that that's the way to to build some some uh, challenge the U.S. or the Western hegemony, especially when it comes to international uh, media and information. And they did many other things that started at that time. And the second shift was 2012-13 when Putin came back as and studied his third term as president then it moved towards more conservative direction so it took the shift there so it was more the idea of a more national direction um, and there was a second sort of uh, uh, a new phase in in the russian uh, how they conceived their own cultural influence or position in the world Russia was always a bit, it, it was always an ambivalent country. Sometimes they would say, we are part of the West. And the whole reason why they moved the capital to St. Petersburg and they built this very French-inspired city and there was the cultural exchange between Russia and Paris. So to a certain extent, they're saying, we are part of Western culture. But there's also the other thing that they're definitely not the West, that they're the other to 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 the West. And it seems that it's more like we are the other to the West than we're Western, that that has been part of Russian propaganda in the 21st century. Yes, that's it's the constant struggle. And it goes always to one. I mean, it's a pendulum that 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 Russia is is maybe going. Um, now it's going towards more anti-Western direction, the emphasizing Russia's own civilization. It's, it's uh, being a Eurasian power rather than European power. And of course, the liberal elite was on a thin layer and not that many. But even now, many of them, because of the war and the situation, so difficult to say exactly what they are, how they are thinking, but they are emphasizing now the, the civilizational character of Russia's own more and more and, and, and trying to cut the Western influences. So where it is very concrete is because I'm working at the university are the science cooperation uh, exchange and, and and all joint projects, whether Russia is part of the uh, European, the Bologna um, area, 
of education say they want to withdraw they want to change that they want to build their own because they see all western influences now as somehow um, challenging their own national values and and that is a very unfortunate shift if that will will happen and those who see the connections uh, or russian connections with with europe and with the west are in, in, in minority. But I have to say one thing that when Russia's policy, foreign policy started to change in the 90s, and when the liberals that, that during the Yeltsin the first period, like Kozarev, lost their positions, the problem wasn't so much that Russia shouldn't cooperate with the West, or the West was somehow evil at that time. They saw as the biggest problem that the good relationship with the West prevents them to uh, have the near abroad influence the near abroad, uh, which is exactly happening. So they prioritized their position as the leader of the former Soviet Union area and have their own rules and, and great powerhood in that area rather than be part of the West because they couldn't have both. And that was actually Russia's choice, in my view, rather than West pushing Russia to that direction. So this whole debate now, whether we overreached and whether we pushed them in that direction, whether NATO, the prospects of NATO expansion pushed them. So, but what you're saying is that they made a geopolitical choice to focus on, on the former republics of the, of the Soviet Union instead of the West. And then they directed a lot of their soft power initiative against the Russian speaking minorities there. Well, this is open to historical interpretation, but I think that, that the so-called centrist and the, that, that Putin then grew out of the centrist, who wasn't the extreme nationalist either. They saw the biggest problem of the, the how, how you cooperate with the West so that you still can have your dominant position within the for, area former Soviet Union and influence. The, they, they, they had, of course, the problem that the, there were 25 million Russians living in the neighborhood countries of the former Soviet states, and they felt that they are somehow threatened uh, and they wanted to re-establish Russia's great powerhood, at least in that area. Uh, so I don't think that NATO enlargement was so important or the, the broken promises as often have been discussed. Uh, uh, there, there was a role, I can't deny that, of course, it was part of the story, but it became much more important than in 2000 after the Orange Revolution. Again, the question was Ukraine. It was Putin when he stopped and changed his policy that was more pro-Western during his first term and then became the Munich speech 2007. So what changed his view and his um, thinking? I think if you, if you have one answer, it's the Orange Revolution so that the West is interfering in his area uh, of the neighborhood. So again, it was not such that much a problem with the West as such or Western values or cooperating with West, but that the West did something in their neighborhood that they didn't like. Well, Yusuf, if there's this reading saying, well, 2007, he speak at the security convention in Munich, 2008, Georgia, 2014, Crimea, and that invading Ukraine in, in February is just the next step of that. And we should have seen it coming over 15 years, that this was just a culmination of something that was already underway. And other people are saying, well, this is really a rupture. Uh, do you see this invasion as an extension or a rupture? Both, of course. But I think this is a rupture in a sense that, that if 2007 Russia rejected the idea of European norms and that they had many problems with them 
already earlier. And, and and of course the West had broken some of the norms as well. So so that as such wasn't wasn't yet so uh, alarming, um, although the speech was uh, quite a cold chill. But many people in Europe thought that this is actually something that we need some somebody has to shake this thinking and 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 even if Putin says so it's good that we we have some food for thought and not that. But the um, what uh, was so problematic in this crisis of 2021 and 22 when the Ukraine war started was that sort of the rationale, even the national interest following Russia following in rationally its own national interest was gone. Either is such a miscalculation or or the uh, risk taking is such a high level that that made Russia much more unpredictable uh, than before. You could still see that Georgia war was a limited war and the risks were minimized. And 14 Ukraine to Crimea operation was calculated. Then the risks started to get bigger in the eastern Ukraine. There was no exit strategy. There were more risks again in Syria, where the Turks shut down Russian planes and all that. So they started to take more risks. But then um, I think that this was something that we didn't expect, that the strategic calculus uh, was such that a large-scale war would be in Russia's national interest. So to be honest, I expected a military special operation to to start in the Donbass area rather than a full-scale war. You've written also about the... the, um... The influence of psychology in geopolitics. You've written a large book uh, uh, about that, and and I think here we attribute a lot to Putin. We're saying, well, this is he was isolated for two years, and he's seen that they're a declining great power, and that the power of natural resources is declining as 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 well. So it's kind of his reading of the Russian position and his own place in history that we often used to explain. This, mm. this radicalization and this doing an invasion that's against the national interest. How do you explain it? Well, exactly. That's that's. We, we, I mean, we can't prove anything, and that's difficult to say that. Well, you shouldn't have any psychological explanations because you can't have a hundred <laughs> percent uh, proof when it comes to uh, political leaders such as Putin. But you have theories, you have connections, you can make arguments to what is a likely explanation, and one of those is that is the famous prospect theory of framing the situation and explaining risk-taking exactly. And, and Putin was willing to take risks, as the theory goes, when he or that actor sees that if they don't do anything, they are on the losing side. Uh, and they avoid risk if they think that they are on the winning side. So 14, Putin thought that if he doesn't do anything, he's on the losing side. Ukraine will make this... Um, association treaty with the European Union and it will approach the European Union and he has to act to prevent that. And when he got Crimea and and there was this Eastern Ukraine, he was again on the winning side. He had become a national hero and and people, his popularity had grown. So less risks and then the situation stabilized. It was the war became less intensive. But over time, and again, with these disappointments with Zelensky and, and other, after seven years, Putin and the Kremlin thought, so this is the theory goes, that if they don't do anything, they will be on the losing side. So Ukraine will still move to the West. And they started needed to start a new operation. And 
now if we follow that logic, when Russia has now gained the territorial gains and, and the land corridor of the Crimea, the, the Donetsk and Luhansk oblast, so maybe they think that they are on the winning side again, and they, they try to stabilize the situation. But of course, there are some other psychological theories and explanations like the, the group thinking that these people from the same um, security services, same age men think alike, it will strengthen their thinking and, and therefore their willingness to take risks. And that is, of course, one of the problems in that situation, that there's nobody who is really able to challenge their logic. And, and they are maybe have to learn something during the war that we don't know. Uh, but they, they took risks that is almost impossible, in my view, to explain without the effect of such group think. It was a very small circle where they made the decision about the large scale, starting launching a large scale war against, against Ukraine. There are many other things like the personality of Putin. And I just say one thing that people who stay in power as long as he has stayed, mm. it, will, it will influence one's brain and the likelihood also to take risks um, in that leadership position. And, and that's also one unfortunate thing. I have many questions, but I don't have to, I've only have time for one last last question. As someone who studied uh, Russian geopolitics and Russian security reasoning and power for years, what are you hoping for in the situation that we're in now? What, what do you see as potential progress both on the battlefield and in the sanctions regime around Putin? I hope for peace, of course, but then to be realistic, we would first need a stalemate. We would either need a complete victory or a stalemate. And, and if there's a stalemate, then we can start negotiating. And then possibly the, the war will end. And if we can negotiate a proper peace deal, then the peace could be more durable. Uh, then the negative aspect is, of course, that it will be only an interim peace um, and the stalemate will be challenged then after a few years again, when either of the sides think that time is on their side, that they might be on the winning side. Thank you very much, Thomas Forsberg. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. Thank, Thank you, you for enlightening us. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. Det var min samtale med Thomas Forsberg, og jeg vil gerne her til sidst lige anbefale et par af hans bøger. Hans bog, som hedder The Psychology of Foreign Policy for 2021, er en fantastisk god forklaring på, hvorfor psykologi betyder meget mere, end vi bryder os om at tænke på i international politik. Vi kan godt have vores store ideologiske forklaringer og rationelle teorier om, hvorfor folk gør, som de gør. Men psykologi er en rest, man ikke kan reducere væk, og som bliver ved med at spille en afgørende indflydelse. Og så vil jeg igen slå et slag for Russia's Cultural Statecraft fra 2022, som er en helt fantastisk undersøgelse af, hvad Ruslands kultur betyder for omverdenen, og hvordan Rusland bruger soft power til at sætte sig igennem i verden. I næste uge skal vi tale med en, der nærmest er en kulturelt held på Dagbladet Information. Det er den russisk-britiske forsker og forfatter Peter Pomerantsev. Peter Pomerantsev har selv arbejdet med at lave tv i Rusland i 2000'erne. Han har jagtet, hvordan Putin satte sig igennem. Han forstår, hvordan Putin blev skabt, og hvorfor tv spillede så stor en rolle for det. Peter Pomerantsev har en formidabel indsigt i russisk propaganda og i, hvordan vi opfatter den. 
og så har nogle rigtig gode analyser af de billeder, vi får af krigen. Jeg håber, vi høres ved i næste uge. Tak til jer for at lytte med.